You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished uh, guests, uh, colleagues, those joining us online. You're all very, very welcome. We're delighted uh, to see so many of you here this evening for our Behind the Headlines discussion on climate change. Can stories save the world? Um, My name is Jane Olmeyer. I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub. We're a research institute in the arts and humanities. It's this beautiful building uh, behind me. And um, again, for those of you who've not been over to the hub, we do three things there. The first thing we do is celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities. And that's a tradition that goes way back to the 17th century at the very least. Um, We promote conversations across disciplines. Uh, So uh, uh, tonight's going to be a wonderful example of that where we're going to have a historian, a literary scholar, actually two historians, uh, and an artist uh, in conversation. So that's the second thing the Hub does, is promote these multi- and interdisciplinary conversations, because, as again we're going to see this evening, the magic happens when the disciplines uh, collide. The third thing we do in the Hub is uh, we like to bring humanities to uh, the uh, widest possible audiences uh, in our public humanities programme. And obviously, these behind the headlines are a great example of, of that. To begin with, I want to thank the John Pollard Foundation, without whose support we wouldn't be sitting here this evening. Um, and uh, just to, I was going to say, it's, 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 I think it says there as well, but to acknowledge, or if it doesn't, it, it should, or it does, supported by the John Pollard Foundation. Um, Through this series, we try very hard to focus on topics that are either being debated in the media or that are uh, key issues of our times. Um, And we want to really try and apply the rich and long-term perspectives of the arts and humanities and to provide a space for respectful public discourse, embracing nuance and combating at simplification. In anticipation of Trinity's uh, Green Week, tonight's Behind the Headlines looks to the humanities' uh, uh, take on climate change. Uh, We ask, how do history, literature, film and art help us understand the contemporary environmental challenges that we uh, face? So we have a really distinguished uh, panel this evening, and I'm going to simply introduce everybody and then... um, Each speaker has nine minutes. Um, So our first speaker tonight is uh, my colleague from history, Francis Ludlow. He's Professor of Medieval Environmental History. He also holds um, one of the Irish Research Council Laureate Awards. Uh, Tonight, Francis will discuss climate history, uh, which is obviously a transdisciplinary field that puts uh, written and natural uh, archives uh, together. Um, and allows us to use um, these understandings to better uh, uh, comprehend uh, how the climate has changed over time and how society has been vulnerable uh, uh, to uh, climate change. Our second uh, speaker this evening, and she's particularly welcome, is Jumana uh, Mana. Uh, Jumana is a Palestinian. Uh, She uh, then was educated in in Jerusalem. She lives in Berlin. Uh, She's an artist. Uh, She's also a filmmaker um, who uh, is currently, her film is Wild uh, Relatives. uh, And it's on view in the Douglas Hyde Gallery. For those of you who don't know where the Douglas Hyde is, it's just literally as you go out, it's the gallery uh, that faces you. And we're really delighted this evening to have this opportunity to collaborate with the uh, Douglas Hyde. And it's lovely that Georgina and the team are here. And we hope to be, to be the first of many collaborations between the Hub uh, and uh, the Douglas Hyde. Um, but Wild Relatives brings together the story of seed preservation in the face of war and climate uh, change. It's on for another 10 days. So if you haven't already see, seen uh, it, please, please do. Our third speaker uh, this evening is uh, Christopher Pastore. And um, Chris is a Marie Curie uh, co-fund fellow um, at the Trinity Longroom Hub. 
Uh, and uh, when he's not with us in the hub, he's a professor of history at the University of Albany. Um, and it's been lovely to have had Chris with us uh, 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 since October. Oh, actually, no, it was even earlier. It was September or even August, maybe, you arrived. Uh, it's, it's gone too quickly, Chris. Uh, and he'll be uh, discussing how climate and efforts to define it shaped the early modern Atlantic world. And then at last uh, but not least uh, is another uh, uh, alumni, alumna of the hub, Dr. Elise uh, Bulfin, uh, who is a literary and cultural uh, scholar, and she will discuss how current fiction and film is increasingly uh, saturated with narratives of climate change and environmental uh, catastrophe, and how these narratives help provide a framework for how we think about uh, real uh, environmental issues and explore the kinds of effects uh, that these works have on their audiences. So again, four cracking speakers. As usual, we hope that you'll join the conversation. Um, uh, uh, and please switch, uh, switch your phones to silent, but feel free to tweet uh, and uh, use the uh, hashtag uh, HubMatters. Uh, um, uh, we will, of course, leave plenty of time uh, for questions and answers at the end, again, as is our practice. So if you could now uh, join me in welcoming our first speaker uh, this evening, uh, Francis Ludlow. Okay, thank you very much for the chance to take part here tonight. So my story uh, will focus on some collaborative work within the field of climate history, as Jane said, that examines how the Nile has varied in the past, the Nile River, and how this has affected ancient Egyptian society, with some lessons perhaps for the contemporary period here. And it's, uh, we're doing this work as part of an NSF-funded project uh, with colleagues in Yale, Columbia University, and San Francisco State University. So it's quite an interdisciplinary team and fun and challenging also because of that to work with. So this set of images uh, is just my attempt to quickly communicate how important the Nile was and is to uh, Egyptian society. On the right, you can see how most of Egypt is effectively desert once you're away from the coast or once you're away from the river. But within the valley, the Nile Valley itself, the river has a dramatic influence, uh, seen here in green. And this allowed Egypt to achieve some of the highest grain yields uh, of the ancient world and is tied to the fabulous uh, riches for which the state is so renowned. Now, the importance of the Nile, particularly its annual summer flood, is highlighted nicely uh, by this statue, I think, which found submerged off the coast of Alexandria a few years ago. This is Happy, uh, the god of the annual flood of the Nile, carved out of a single block of red granite and weighing, even in its, in its carved state, six tons. But the Nile was also famously erratic, uh, failing to provide sufficient flood water for agriculture, um, maybe every one out of every seven years, as so some ancient authors claimed. And you can certainly find evidence of the devastating consequences of years when the Nile failed to flood in, this, uh, in carving such as this of a uh, depiction of famine victims um, from Egypt. Now we know that one of the things that the Nile flood is most sensitive to is the state of the summer monsoon, which is easier just to show here in this nice animation than to try and describe. Um, each, each summer this intense band of monsoonal rain, which you can see as a sort of yellow to purple shaded area, sweeps north from the equator and dumps large quantities of rain over the Blue Nile headwaters in Ethiopia, and it feeds effectively the summer flood of the Nile. But the monsoon itself is also hugely variable year on year. Um, and we don't actually really have a complete understanding of what drives all of this variability. Now, we do know that one of the things that can potentially impact the monsoon are large volcanic eruptions. And here's an image of the June 1991 eruption of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines. And this caused global temperatures to drop for about three years afterwards. On the left, you can see the ash and sulfur-rich gases being propelled kilometers into the atmosphere um, within the eruption column. And the two photos on the right show the Earth's stratosphere at sunset before and after the, this eruption. The top right shows a clear stratosphere taken in 1984, and the bottom right shows the situation two months after the eruption of Pinatubo. And you can see here these two darker layers of sulfate aerosol particles sitting in the stratosphere. And it turns out that these particles uh, just happen to be pretty good at backscattering or reflecting incoming solar radiation to space, leading to severe surface cooling uh, for up to three years following before they settle out through time under gravity. So we know also that this sort of cooling won't just lead to a temperature impact, but also will lead to less evaporation over uh, water bodies, oceans, and seas, 
And this is a one way in which eruptions can impact the monsoons as well. So obviously, uh, we would like to, to, to really get to understand the impact of eruptions on a monsoon. We'd like to examine multiple eruptions and see uh, what their impacts were. But there have actually been quite few large eruptions in the last 100 years or so, the period uh, for which we have the best instrumental and even satellite uh, weather data. So that's unfortunate. So there has been a long time, really, uh, for a long time, a great need to construct longer-term history of explosive volcanism. And one of the best ways of doing this has been to exploit natural archives, uh, such as the polar ice sheets uh, here in Greenland. Now, it's possible to drill very deep cores from these uh, ice sheets and identify uh, each year's annual snowfall over time as it gets compressed into ice. And you can see these layers here quite visible, and you can count them backwards from the present. You can also melt those layers and measure the amount of sulfate that, that is captured within each year's snowfall. And when there's been a big volcanic eruption, that sulfate will be elevated because that sulfate is eventually falling out over time with the snow. So this actually gives us a really nice way to reconstruct in through the past, through the, past um, the history and the size of volcanic eruptions that have occurred. And you can see them here in this sulfate measurement graph as these big spikes above the background. These are volcanic eruptions. So because of the strength, really, of, of, the, of its written history, Egypt probably provides one of the best regions in which to do climate history and to examine the past impact of volcanic eruptions. And if we are interested in the Nile and underlying that, the monsoon, we can make use of the incredible but really often overlooked Nilometer record, which in its surviving state alone provides annual flood height data back to, the six, to 622 AD, making it the longest human-created continuous environmental record in the world. So this is a picture of the Nilometer on Rhoda Island in Cairo. And it basically, despite looking all fancy and ornate, acts as a big measuring stick. Um, with the summer flood water coming in through the bottom and the of the well and being measured each year off this central stick. Now this chart, yeah, that, Yep, this chart just shows, uh, shows these measurements back to 622. And one thing that you can immediately see is just how variable the flood is each year, with some exceptionally low values, which we know for the medieval period were often associated with harvest failure and sometimes leading on to famine. All right, very good. Now, okay. So one of the, the first things my colleagues and I did when we got ha a hold of this data and this mix of data was to take the dates of major volcanic eruptions from ice cores and compare those to what the Nilometer was saying. Um, and that's what this bottom chart actually shows here. It's the average summer flood values in each of the eight years before uh, 60 of the largest volcanic eruptions in this whole period. This, the average value in those 60 years of the summer flood and in the eight years following. And what's quickly revealed is just how persistently sensitive the Nile is to these eruptions over more than a millennia, giving us some idea now of what to expect then when we look at big eruptions in, in the deeper past, before we have the Nilometer, and what, giving us some idea perhaps of what we might expect after big eruptions in the future. Now, and of the deeper past itself, we were particularly interested in the Egypt's Ptolemaic era of the last three centuries BC, which was one of the most richly documented eras of Egypt's history, with perhaps over 100,000 surviving papyrus documents. It's a period in which Egypt comes under the control of a Greek elite, the Ptolemies, after the state has been conquered by Alexander the Great. And it was a period of, of, of rapid change in Egypt, with major material and cultural advances, such as the construction of the Great Library of Alexandria, and indeed the city of Alexandria itself. But it was also a very turbulent period with repeated food shortages described in the documentation that survives, descriptions of famine, and the state eventually ultimately falling in the midst of this turmoil to uh, Rome in 30 BC uh, with the suicide of Cleopatra. So we certainly do know also of this period uh, of multiple major revolts occurring against the Ptolemaic elite, such as the great Theban revolt of 207 BC, in which the Ptolemies lose control of a large area of Egypt for about 20 years. And it's described nicely in an inscription from this beautiful temple here, a temple of Isis on the island of Philae. Um, usually the decline of the state is blamed on the quality of the leadership by modern historians, and indeed by ancient historians from whom they draw, with the kings basically becoming drunken womanizers and not giving enough attention to uh, the job that they have at hand, the, the proper moral rulership of, of Egypt. And 
the native Egyptians therefore revolting frequently against this Greek foreign elite. But one of the things that you can note about this, the, the standard histories of the period, is there's very little consideration for any role for the environment, large or small, despite how massively dependent the Egyptian society was on um, the Nile of this period. Now one of the things we know, uh, thanks to our ice-core evidence, is that the period experienced about 24 major volcanic eruptions, way more than we've had to deal with in the present period. So one of the things we've done is to compare the dates of these revolts with the dates of these volcanic eruptions. And you can see here the same type of chart, the frequency of revolts leading up in the years before the eruption, during and after the eruptions. And you can see that these spike up in frequency here. So there certainly seems to be a link between stress induced by Nile failure, associated with volcanic eruptions, and political turmoil. It's not, the only, only, it's not the only thing that's happening, but it's certainly an ingredient that's missing from most histories. Now, you won't be surprised to hear that any combination of, of uh, ancient Egypt and um, big volcanic eruptions is going to attract some media attention. Um, and after we published some of these results in 2017, we did indeed get a lot of interest from journalists. About 80 different news outlets covered um, the story. Um, but what we see when we're dealing with uh, journalists, we saw main, many of them basically honing in on the more sensationalistic uh, angles um, or interpretations of the results, such as volcanic kiss of death, basically ascribing the fall of the state to these big volcanic eruptions. And this was despite our efforts to say, well, hang on, okay, yes, we, we can now connect big volcanic shocks to the system, to revolts, but we can also say that over 275 years, the Ptolemies managed to weather many more of these revolts than we did, uh, or these, uh, these volcanic eruptions than we've done in the modern era. And that you could equally interpret this as a story of success, at least across most of the state's history. But an experience we've had, certainly, is that getting good science journalists and building relationships with them, and they are out there, is very important when you're, you're trying to tell our stories like this, because the ma vast majority of, of journalists are going to go for these type of interpretations, no matter what you tell them. Um, now just, um, th and no matter how much you tell them of the documentation that abundantly describes the efforts that the Ptolemies take, took as leaders, for example, importing massive amounts of grain from elsewhere in the Mediterranean to try and feed the population, no matter what you tell them of technological advances in this period as well. Almost at my last slide, if, if it will come on. Yes, such as the invention in the third century BC in this region of the Sakia, which is an ox-driven water-lifting machine, which is actually still in use in, uh, in parts of the region today. Um, so that the society was by no means a passive victim. So there is still a present context, and, and we were asked about this, and we were aware of it as well, in the present hydropolitics of the region over of access to Nile waters and in particularly how this has these tensions have been inflamed with the ongoing construction in Ethiopia of this grand Ethiopian Renaissance dam which is the largest dam or will be in Africa. Now it has the potential to significantly impede the flow of water through Sudan and, to, and through Egypt so there has been massive tensions between the states basically with the Egyptian president being, letting it be known that he will bomb the dam if an if a agreeable water sharing um, arrangement isn't met. Um, and there has been little progress really on, on these talks, it seems to date. And also one of the things we were interested in in, the, in this specific case was whether there was any allowance for what might happen um, or how these water sharing agreements will actually cope when there's the next big volcanic eruption and actually lowers the flow of the Nile naturally or when humans start to try to counteract global warming by mimicking the effects of volcanic eruptions, by putting uh, sulfate particles into the atmosphere artificially, which is certainly something that's quite feasible in the near future, and even financially feasible for unilaterally for large countries like uh, China or the US. So. This is just to say that, in case anyone asks, yes, climate change is actually happening, and we are experiencing global warming, which will exacerbate uh, these water availability issues. Okay, thank you. So 
So it's lovely to see you all here. Thank you for coming. Thanks for the Douglas Hyde and the Longdom Hub for the invitation. Um, so out of the nine minutes given to speak, I want to show you a two-minute trailer. If I can get to it. I think that was it. Can you get the sound up, please? Um, yeah, so that's a two-minute trailer of the film that's showing next door in the Douglas Hyde Gallery that I hope some of you get to see. Um, I'll just say briefly what the film is about and talk a little bit about the themes that kind of inspired the film and that I've been invested in over the past few years. So the starting point was a transaction of seeds that took place between uh, Agricultural Research Center in Aleppo and the Global Seed Vault in Svalbard. Um, First of all, a seed vault, for those of you who don't know, is basically a large refrigerator uh, with thousands of samples of different kinds of seeds. Um, and these seed banks have been established since, I mean, they've existed for a long time, since the turn of the century, the very early examples of them, but more prominently since the 60s and 70s, when industrial agriculture started needing a gene pool to produce new kinds of seeds, what they called higher yielding seeds or modern seeds. So this agricultural research center that I follow um, has been in Aleppo since around 1970, 1977. Um, the Assad regime invited them to establish these large headquarters in Aleppo um, in this period when the regime was trying to so-called modernize their agricultural system, um, also thereby centralizing control over the rural populations in Syria. Um, but this agricultural research center be belongs to an international network um, from this period, from the 60s and 70s, that were established across the global south um, in an attempt to kind of improve the living quality of small farmers, but also include them into the, into the international capital market. Um, so back to the film. So the, this center had to move from Syria to Lebanon uh, a few years ago due to the revolution that began in 2011. Um, so they were able to move their staff, a lot of their facilities, but one of the, the most important thing they weren't able to move was their seed bank, um, which had over 140,000 different kinds of seed samples that they had been collecting for about 40 years. Um, so what they decided to do is to create a duplicate bank from their safety backups that they had been storing in Svalbard, which is a very remote island in the Arctic Ocean um, that's under the jurisdiction of Norway, but is not really part of Norway. 
Um, and the Global Seed Vault is basically a backup facility for hundreds of seed banks of this sort around the world. So I'm sure Ireland has a national seed bank. Almost every country would have a national seed bank. And then there's also international ones for different kinds of research um, and industry purposes. So the Global Seed Vault is, takes in backups of anybody, any, any, any seed bank that wishes to preserve a backup coffee in case of any kind of catastrophe that happens to the local seed bank. Um, so ICARDA, the center that was based in Syria, was the first case of a seed bank asking to withdraw their backup copies stored in the Global Seed Vault in Svalbard. Um, so the film basically follows one annual cycle of trying to duplicate a batch of these seeds. Um, so the ICARDA takes out the, their black boxes from the Global Seed Vault. Uh, they send them to Lebanon, to their new headquarters, where they plant the seeds. They follow them grow across one year. They're harvested, dried, threshed, and frozen once again. And from these new batch of seeds, there is a local gene bank that's being established in Lebanon, and then a new backup that's sent back to Svalbard to kind of replenish the ones that were taken out. So that's essentially the journey that the film follows, but that was for me also an excuse to look at a number of other issues. Um, amongst it, the hierarchy of labor that's been involved in the reproduction of these seeds. So. The girls who you see in the film are primarily um, Syrian refugees who are in Lebanon, who are kind of a common workforce in the Bekaa Valley where a lot of the agricultural production of Lebanon takes place because they're the cheapest labor. And ironically, a lot of the girls who are planting these seeds, the seeds which traveled from Syria to Svalbard and back to Lebanon, uh, come from the same areas around Aleppo where the seed bank used to exist. But of course, they cannot travel anywhere, but these seeds due to their economic value have traveled across the world. Um, then there's also the scientists and the breeders who do the actual breeding work on the seeds. Um, and there's also a scene with a press conference in the Global Seed Vault in Svalbard where you see how this initiative also serves as a kind of diplomatic um, place, a place where Norwegian politicians meet the heads of these research institutes. Um, so it's a place where a bit of the cynicism for me emerges behind these initiatives. Um, and then there's also a couple farmers who play a key role in the film. One Syrian farmer who has nothing to do with these larger research institutes. He's an organic farmer um, that has this, what he calls a seed library. So it's not a seed bank. He doesn't freeze the seeds, but they're really kept um, in a very humble place and they're exchanged between different kind of organic farmers in the area. Um, another farmer who doesn't farm anymore, but just is a van driver uh, is Yusuf, who who picks up the seeds from the airport when they arrive from Svalbard and has interesting things to say about the state of farming in Lebanon um, and the region. Um, so I think these are the main characters. And in Svalbard, there's also the priest and scientist who you saw briefly, who have kind of larger kind of ideas around the future of the earth and, and, and climate change and the migration of, of crops. So the film for me kind of merges to um, two different kinds of revolutions. One is the, the Syrian revolution, which, um, which is a very recent one that has had catastrophic revolts in the end uh, due to the oppression of the Syrian regime to the demands of um, uh, those who started the uprising, many of them being of rural populations. So um, many of them kind of went to the streets because life became unlivable. Agriculture was no longer kind of sustainable or even um, it was no longer possible for them to live from it anymore along with, of course, uh, a long list of other forms of oppression um, by the dictator. Uh, and the other revolution is a scientific one called the Green Revolution. Um, and that's basically a transformation of the way that agriculture was, has, been, has occurred historically. Um, so it's essentially the industrialization of agriculture and its intensification through these research centers along the global south primarily, but also in, in the United States and Europe. So it's a kind of move towards an intensified agriculture that depends on not local heirloom varieties, but on um, so-called improved varieties that are bred in labs and are usually uniform, um, as well as chemical inputs and new irrigation uh, systems that, of course, you know, they, they help the yield grow, but they also um, deplete a lot of water resources. So when the Green Revolution happened in the 60s and 70s, it was considered a miracle because yields almost doubled in places like India. Um, but over time, they, they've showed the results that have become kind of more general knowledge for us today in terms of the damage of the chemicals involved um, and the water resources. So 
the film tries to look at the kind of potential connections between the green revolution, so the industrialization of farming, its impact on rural communities, and the Syrian revolution. So the attempt to kind of control populations um, and suppress their, their demands for, for civil equality. Um, there's a lot more things to say, but we'll leave it to the discussion, hopefully. <laughs> Um, hi, everyone. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I, uh, I'm a historian of, uh, an environmental historian of the oceans. Uh, and um, as the 19th century oceanographer uh, Matthew Fontaine Mori explained, the ocean uh, may be regarded as a grand expression of meteorological agencies. Uh, and so I'm going to talk about those meteorological agencies kind of in the context of the ocean. And one of the reasons why I, I really love Ireland is it's kind of, it is kind of a grand expression of meteorological agencies. It's once the ocean, it's climate. And I'm going to talk a little bit today about um, that tension between the two. And specifically, I focus on the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, that period known as the Enlightenment, where um, uh, in, in a European concept, context we saw the shift um, for, from perhaps uh, uh, faith and religion uh, in more stratified social hierarchies uh, to uh, science and perhaps a rethinking or a rejiggering of those social hierarchies. Um, in a scientific standpoint, um, we saw the shift in, in a climatic standpoint we see the shift from wonders, uh, things like rainbows and lightning storms, um, these kind of preternatural wonders, shifting towards curiosity, uh, a term that suggested systematic investigation, um, measure, a measured approach. Um, and natural philosophers at the time uh, developed uh, new systems under this uh, curiosity uh, approach uh, for evaluating climate. Uh, and stories were central to those systems. Uh, narratives were the principal ways uh, that they uh, conveyed climatic knowledge. Um, and so as I'll explain today, uh, these stories uh, were shaped by moral concerns, they were shaped by political anxieties, uh, they were shaped by economic desires. Uh, all of those things were wrapped up in climate back in the 17th and 18th century. And so what I'll do, again, I'll talk a little bit about that. I'll show you a little bit about it, and then we'll try to bring it up to the present. Um, whoop, I'm going the wrong, maybe the wrong direction. Okay, climates uh, in the 17th and 18th century, or in the early modern period, um, were kind of included all things. Uh, the temperature, the wetness, the dryness, uh, tides, uh, winds, geology, flora, fauna, uh, and even the people who uh, depended on them uh, were all part of a climate. Because in this period, climates were synonymous with bands of latitude. Uh, it was assumed that within temperature bands, um, perhaps uh, that uh, across the Atlantic world, uh, that uh, climate would be relatively steady. So Dublin would have the same climate as northern Labrador. Or we might see Barcelona would have the same climate as New York. Again, a synonymous with these bands of latitude. Uh, over time, um, well, in, in, within these bands of latitude, they also, oops, sorry, they assumed that uh, they would be able to grow the same things. And for the English, uh, who were developing their wool industry and um, they, they needed sources of oil, uh, they were looking to America uh, perhaps as a place to grow olive trees. Uh, they were looking at Barcelona and thinking, perhaps we can grow uh, lemons in New York or lemons in Virginia. Uh, they would soon discover that that was not the case. Um, they were faced with the Little Ice Age, that 
period between about 1550 and 1850, where global temperatures were about a degree to a degree and a half Celsius lower than they are now. Um, this is a picture of the, the frozen Thames in 1677. Um, and this really shaped the contest for empire. Um, Um, in the late 16th century, there was a series of crop failures across Europe. And because of that, um, sorry, this isn't really working. Okay, okay. Um, Spain imagines the new world, world its new uh, world empire as somewhat overstretched. Uh, that its people are too far afield, that it needs to bring them closer to home uh, to deal with famine. In England, they imagine uh, America as an outlet. As the poor, the hungry poor, are streaming into London, they see their colonies as uh, uh, a possible pool, uh, a place to send that work or that starving poor. And this is, comes from uh, Sam White's uh, wonderful new book, uh, uh, A Cold Welcome. Um, this uh, prompted a lot of people, promoters, colonial promoters in particular, uh, in a form of almost reverse climate denial, right? Uh, for the Spanish, uh, they insisted that the conditions in America had to be fairly similar to what they were in Spain. Um, as a result, they didn't have the right clothing. They were freezing. They were hungry. And uh, in uh, response, uh, they were often forced to attack Native Americans. Uh, there are multiple accounts of them stealing Native American food, stealing Native American blankets and clothing uh, to stay warm. This led to outright bloodshed. Among the English, similar things were happening uh, where, um, I mean, uh, the English, they had a, this idea that Protestants were kind of, uh, uh, that they would, um, could, could endure the cold better than anyone else. Uh, and so they, 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 were, they clung to this idea. Uh, unfortunately, when they arrived in the New World, they, they didn't. Uh, and uh, particularly in the North, they, um, they were very cold. Uh, many uh, in these garrisons where they were socked in with snow were dying of scurvy. Um, so climate denial in many ways uh, led to catastrophe. Um, this led to a lot of climate speculation. There were some who advanced the idea that, well, maybe America was colder because the sun lost its energy as it traveled over the ocean. Other people put out the idea that, well, maybe there are fewer stars in the sky in America, and that's why it's colder. Um, still others uh, believed, uh, John Mason of Newfoundland said that it was an abundance of lakes in North America that made America colder. Um, uh, they put out a whole host of ideas trying to figure out why there were uh, differences in the climate. Sorry, oops. Okay. Um, over time, they started, uh, uh, settlers began to um, systematically investigate the climate. There's a, a diary, a picture of Samuel, uh, Captain Samuel Tillinghast, uh, kept a diary in Warwick, Rhode Island, about uh, 60 miles south of Boston. Um, Thomas Neve uh, in Valley Nealmore in County Derry, uh, he, was, he lived about a mile and a half from Loch Ney. And this is the oldest extant uh, uh, weather diary uh, from Ireland. It's actually held by the Royal Academy. Um, but he, they, they started to use a system of systematically um, uh, accounting for uh, climatic uh, uh, parts of the climate, if you will, um, according to Robert Hooke's method of making the history of the weather. They would use similar language from Rhode Island all the way to, to County Derry. Things like spitting, dropping, misting, smur, showery for rain, uh, visibility using terms like fog and foggy, misty, hazy, thick, glowery, gloomy. They used all these kind of antiquated terms, but they were similar across the empire, whether they were in Ireland, whether they were in America, whether they were in India. And they were using these terms as a way to, again, systematically take stock of climatic changes. Now, um, over time, they also started to use uh, 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 instrumentation, the barometer. Uh, this is a picture of a barometer around 1705. Uh, in the 18th century, they were using the thermometer. Um, they started, um, and with these gauges, they really started to take stock of uh, uh, the weather. And they actually, as Jan Galinsky has argued, they started to create the weather anew. 
all right? What was not, what was something that was kind of uh, uh, ephemeral uh, became something that was observed over time, all right? By, so by the 18th century, they're creating the weather and they're starting to control it. By the 1740s, Ben Franklin creates his lightning rod. They start to actually investigate hurricanes in the Caribbean. By the 1770s, they actually come up with this, uh, a system called meteorology. Um, they begin to uh, also redefine the climate because they believe they can improve it. Um, Hugh Williamson wrote a paper at, for the American Philosophical Society and he said, clearing and smoothing the face of the country would make the winters warmer, summers cooler, and country healthier, okay? Um, William Robertson, a Scottish historian of America said that clearing the American coast had improved conditions there, uh, but among the northern provinces, nature continues to wear the same uncultivated aspect and appears more desolate and hard. Ultimately, politics plays a role Okay, um, in that uh, the Americans are convincing, trying to convince the French that they change the environment, okay, uh, for the better. And in England, after the American Revolution, storms were uh, arising. Uh, they imagined that um, uh, in the wake of the Revolution and in the wake of the French Revolution, that things were getting wetter in, in Britain, uh, that it was causing a, a bad situation cloudiness and coldness during the springs and summers. Um, and this was caused by deforestation and closure, okay? And so as a way to get around this, they created a system, a, a, new, a new technological system, or at least this is what John Williams wanted to do, uh, where he would electrify the skies. And by electrifying the skies, it would uh, dry out Britain, it would dry out Ireland, and it would make it a better place to live. All right, and this was essential because Ireland and England were imagined, and it was, they, were, they were places of exper uh, experimental knowledge, okay? Swift and Steele be both believed that Britain depended on it. The nation was based upon the climate. Oh, and we lost it, okay? Ultimately, um, ultimately, I'll conclude by saying there's a couple lessons here. Um, we have overlooked the extent to which climatic pressures have spurred human migration, conflict, uh, and outright war. Uh, if at times we've risen to, risen to climatic challenges, at others we've remained firmly committed to misconceptions. Okay? Uh, climate is uh, much more than an atmospheric condition. It's a cultural construction. It's mediated by human ambition, politics, economics. Right? We've got to own up to that. Um, people have long believed that human action could shape the climate. Right? They've long tried to advance technological solutions for affecting the climate. Uh, and ultimately, we need to recognize that climate problems are human, problem, human problems. Uh, we need stories to understand those human problems. Uh, we make decisions based on emotions. Uh, and stories are those things that we can do to get to those emotions. Stories are those things uh, that can help us understand kind of the moral implications of what we're doing. Thank you. I'm going to take us uh, right up to the present moment um, and talk about the kinds of stories that we're telling ourselves now. And I want to start with a topical quote that I think gets to the heart of what I'm going to be talking about this evening. Um, many of you will be aware of the recent fairly stark report brought out by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as recently as last October, where they make it very clear if we don't stick to 1.5 degrees um, in terms of a rise above uh, pre-industrial temperatures, things are going to get very bad for us. Now, interpreting this warning, a New York Times climate reporter wrote, I'm listening to the UN's climate change panel and they're basically saying it would take a Herculean effort to stop us from hitting 1.5 degrees Celsius. Based on their description, the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees is basically the difference between the Hunger Games and Mad Max. 
what she's getting at here is it's the difference between some kind of social order persisting in the future and complete brutal lawless anarchy, which is what's represented in the, those two different kinds of cultural works. So what this dramatic comparison, I think, makes clear is that we use stories to make sense of our world. When faced with the difficulty of trying to interpret a massive scientific report about impersonal large forces like climate change, we turn to the kinds of images that you see here. We draw on them as something that's actually slightly more familiar to us in order to make sense of them so that these works can act like a kind of interpretive lens um, through which we can understand our world and the issues that we face. Now, key examples of um, really prominent cultural works that engage more directly with climate change are the ones that you can see on screen here. Um, water world imagined global warming to such an extent that all land disappears and humans live in these little man-made atolls and search endlessly for any remaining land. The day after tomorrow, same kind of idea. This is a tidal wave caused by the rising flood tide of global warming, which then actually freezes over New York and produces some very iconic images. And then finally, more recently, Interstellar imagines howling dust clouds um, produced by uh, climate change, making any kind of agricultural production on Earth unsustainable. And the solution proposed here is that humanity goes off planet, which may not be very helpful. But Works like this engage us in ways that are immediate, emotional, even visceral, as I think these images suggest. And it's been shown, actually, that they can have lasting effects on their audiences. And also, they tend to reach a wider audience, even than very popular documentaries. And um, so this means that as well as reflecting our concerns about issues like climate change, they also potentially help to shape them as well. Um, and what's happening at the moment is there seems to be an endless proliferation of these kinds of work in contemporary culture, um, where Waterworld and The Day After Tomorrow might have been relatively rare in their decades. Interstellar is in very good company, if I can manage to... Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, well, wh what uh, should be on screen there, yeah, is um, some, ver some recent examples. Geostorm imagines, and so the Snowpiercer actually the um, unintended consequences of our own technological uh, efforts to mitigate climate change, the kind of thing that Frank was talking about here by um, simulating the effects of volcanic explosion. One causing tidal waves which hit Dubai, the other causing the whole world to freeze, whereas Mad Max imagines um, the diminution of all water resources and the survivors left fighting over the scarce resource that is water. Um, and there's a set of related novels which do the same kind of imaginative work. And all of them are basically hammering home the same premise that what we are doing to the planets is destroying what is basically our life support system. And really, we have only ourselves to blame for this. Um, but these kinds of works can do some, they can help us to think through complex issues in ways that become more immediate to us. So the one I want to focus on this evening is, um, a novel called The Wind-Up Girl from 2009. And I chose it because it links up quite well with Jumana's project. So it's a complex, it's a very complex, intricate world it imagines that's produced out of extrapolating from many different current environmental issues, including uh, climate change, including carbon depletion, but also including what Jumana was talking about, um, this interfering, I suppose, with our natural seed resources because it imagines that all of the seeds in the world have fallen under the control of only a few companies. And when their ha genetic hacking of these seeds goes wrong, it causes genetic plagues and people starve to death globally. Um, and the seed, our international seed resources are completely depleted. Now it's set in future Thailand. Um, and Bangkok, against all the odds, is doing relatively better in this story. Behind flood barriers protecting it from global warming, it keeps a seed bank safe. And what you're seeing on the cover here are what are referred to as the expansion towers. Our era is the expansion, where we push on technologically without thinking about the consequences. Their era is the contraction, where all of the people have died and they're just left in these pockets surviving like Bangkok. Um, Genetic engineering continues apace, and they've rebred megadonts, as they call them, to do the work for them because there's no carbon to fuel um, any other kind of uh, 
uh, industry. So where works like this help us to think things through, the big, you know, abstract issues like climate change is the kinds of details that they can come up with. For example, the characters in this novel are obsessed with flavor. They're on a quest for flavor. They have almost nothing to eat, only what only the few things that are safely produced by the huge corporations. But the Thai seed bank produces still colorful fruit. And it's that little detail of just experiencing the character's delight as they taste something different or as they look at old pictures of markets full of different fruit that helps you to imaginatively connect with actually what it might be like to live in a depleted uh, future scenario like this. Ultimately, things go wrong in this novel as an American corporate spy pursues the Thai seed bank and causes a natural disaster in Bangkok. The floodgates come down, but the seed bank is finally saved. So there is a little bit of hope held out by the end of the novel. Now, the question that always intrigues me, or the thing that I'm really trying to get at, is what kinds of effects do work like, works like these have on their audiences? One suggestion would be that in constantly reiterating these terrible, gloom-laden images of disaster, in constantly yoking the idea of the environment to the idea of disaster and the idea of mitigating climate change to ideas of the apocalypse, actually they make us maybe switch off from engaging with the issue um, of tackling climate change. Maybe they make us apathetic. Maybe they make us think, well, what can I as an individual possibly do? That, that is one potential set of responses. But on a more positive side, and there has actually been some empirical research done which um, backs this up, on the other hand, by closing the gap imaginatively between the abstract and the impersonal and making it more personal um, and even providing slightly optimistic um, endings like we have in Io here where somebody doesn't give up on the planet. This scientist remains in a polluted earth and does her best to mitigate the effects of the pollution that her society faces. But they have shown that audiences respond quite well to these kinds of scenarios. Audiences have documented um, after watching films like The Day After Tomorrow um, that they would change how they think about the issue of climate change, that they would engage in more recycling behavior, and even that they would engage in changing their voting practices. And this has been shown to be one of the most beneficial things that we can do. So I suppose the challenge to us then is to put the right information on mitigation behavior out into the public domain. Um, because while recycling is wonderful, actually collective action is what can make the biggest change. <laughs>